Hi, everybody. My name is Debbie, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'd like to thank the committee for inviting me to participate in your uh, convention this weekend, and uh, I've had a, a fabulous time. And and uh, last night, Tom was uh, hoping he wouldn't disillusion me by telling us that we as speakers just kind of give you guys a couple hours off of your vocal cords. No, I'm, I know what my job is. I'm here to let your dinner digest before the dance. <laughs> That's my job. But I'd like to welcome you to, uh, if you are new to Alcoholics Anonymous, these things are like the icing on the cake. Um, I think home groups are very important, but these are the things where I get to see it in action everywhere. And I get to hear people from around the country do how they do things and share and listen to their experiences. And it always enlightened me, and I hope that you've had a good time, too. I'd certainly like to thank my uh, friends and uh, my host and hostess. And um, I have two other people that I sponsor who, who are here, both from California, who come a long way to hear their sponsor. But... Uh, uh, I'll, I'll pay you guys when you get home. So There are three things about me that I like to tell you in the beginning because these are the three things I always like to know about you. And uh, that is my sobriety date is February the 8th, 1976, which means I've been sober a little over 16 years. But on this program, I'm the newcomer. You know, of the four speakers you have, I'm the, I'm the baby of the bunch. And I'm very honored to be with the people that you've had this weekend. Now, that's a, that isn't my first sobriety date, but it is my last one. And if you are new to Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't have a sobriety date, I encourage you to get one. <laughs> to me, a sobriety date is the absence of everything. I mean little non-habit-forming Valium or smoking pot does count because the last thing I ever took was I smoked one joint. And to me, it's the anything that alters my mind. And I, if there is one thing in my life that is lily white, above reproach, without question at all, it's my sobriety date. Because if I am not honest about that, there is no way in the world that I can be honest about anything else. That is where my foundation lies, is in my sobriety. And so that is my sobriety date. Uh, the second and third thing to me are equally important. I just can't say them at the same time. And that is a home group. Um, my home group is the Bellflower Bigfoot group. I've been a member of that group for five and a half years since I moved to California. Prior to that, I was a member of the Skyland Group in Atlanta, Georgia, for almost seven years. And my original my original home group was the 12 and 12 group in Minneapolis, and I was there for almost four years. Good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> He knows better than to make it real, right? Um, very entertaining tonight, I'll tell you. Okay. 
Um, my, uh, I believe in a home group. Uh, I am a member of a home group, not for their benefit, but for mine. Because I am a born taker, and it, a home group gives me an opportunity to be of service without recognition, to be one among many, to not be in the limelight or the center of attention, because we all like being in the center of attention. And it gives me an opportunity to give back in, a, a, in my own quiet way. And I do that at every meeting of my home group. That is important to me every time I go. Just because I picked up cups a month ago does not carry me through. To me, every meeting is a new meeting at my home group. And I, I believe what Tom said. I, I do. I work the room. That's what I call it. I work the room. And I shake everybody's hand. Not just the people I like, but everybody's hand. Because it makes it very simple for me that way. Otherwise, I'll tell you, if I shook all the people's hand that I liked in my home group, I'd probably have that handshaking done in about 35 seconds, you know? So that's why I don't pick and choose. I just do everybody. And uh, the other thing is a sponsor. Now, I have had three sponsors in sobriety because I've lived in three different states. And I believe, for me, I need local sponsorship and have had that available in all cases. I did not get my first official sponsor, and I say it that way for a reason, till I was three years sober. When I came into Alcoholics Anonymous 16 years ago, I hugged on to the coattails of the old-timers. And to me, an old-timer was anybody who had been sober longer than I had been alive, and at 18 years old, that was an awful lot of them. And at 34 today, it's still a lot of them, so it was neat being in that old-timers meeting, how many people been, were sober before I was even born. And so I followed them, but I would I heard about sponsors and that you should have one of these. And so I would ask somebody who was maybe a friend or perhaps six months sober longer than me, and I'd call them on the phone and I would say, will you be my sponsor? They would say, yes. Well, that's the last phone call I made, you know. I didn't know what to do with them. And so as a result, my sobriety was a lot on fellowship and activity. But it's when I was three years sober that I got a sponsor who really showed me and helped me to study the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I would not even, I wouldn't dream of being without a sponsor today. And so those three things have kept me in very good stead. A sobriety date, a home group, and a sponsor. And if you are here tonight and don't have any of those or one or two of them, if, if you're missing one of them, I hope you will leave this weekend with all three intact because your life, I guarantee you, will begin to change. Mine has. Mine does and continues to. I had my first drink the same night as my first drunk. If I had a drink before that, it was not memorable. I don't remember it. Uh, maybe a sip off of daddy's highball in seven or something like that, but it was nothing of memory to me. But I had been, I was 12 years old when I had my first drink. And uh, to me, uh, it, it well, it changed my life. I, uh, I had been invited to a party by the cool kids in school. Now, there, some people are interested in those or attracted to those athletically inclined, some attracted to those academically inclined. 
instinctively I was attracted to the people who were the rebels and who drank and got in trouble. Those are the people I wanted to hang out with. And they had invited me to do that. And so I was invited to this party. My first drink would be on Friday the 13th, April of 1970. And um, Fridays, uh, it was a good Friday for me, I'll tell you. It uh, changed my life. But you see, that particular night, I would... I would be the first person I ever saw drunk. Now, I don't, my, the person that took that drink had no reason to take a drink. As a friend of mine says, if my environment would have determined whether or not I would have been an alcoholic, I wouldn't be an alcoholic. There is no alcoholism whatsoever in my family. I have no brothers and sisters, my parents aren't, my grandparents aren't, my uh, none of the line. My dad's brothers and sisters are not. We have no idea where this has come from. So, but I've got it. I know I've got it. And that's really all that matters to me is that I know I have it and that I have a way to take care of it. But I did not, I was an only child. I was raised in the Catholic Church. Raised in the Catholic schools for five years. I was loved. I was raised in the Midwest in South Dakota. I lived there for 16 years. Was loved. I did not want or lack for anything. Uh, there, there just wasn't any particular reason. I didn't feel like I a misfit necessarily. I didn't feel like I need something, that something's wrong and I'm out of place. I don't remember any of that. And yet, I couldn't wait to drink with these people and to be a part of. And so, the way I saw people drink were my parents. And they were, as I have come to understand Alcoholics Anonymous, social drinkers. I have never been one, so I don't know this from firsthand, but this was my observation. They were people who had would have company over. That's the only time they would drink. They needed a reason to drink. And so they would have these guests over, and they would take down that dusty whiskey bottle that God knows how long it had been in there. They would pour their guests a drink, one, and they would put in ice and mix and foo-foo and stuff, recap it and shove it for another undetermined amount of time. God knows. They would drink that drink all night long. They would have dinner, and they'd play cards, and then they'd have coffee and sandwiches because they were driving home. You know, I mean, this kind of stuff. Now, they would have just that one drink. I have never had just one drink in my life. I've never wanted to have just one drink. And as I say, I'd be embarrassed to drink like that. You know, this, why bother? I uh, never would drink like that, yet that was my role models. Because you see, what would be as natural to them as that, what became, became natural to me, was that I would soon be taking that fresh whiskey bottle, uncapping it and tossing it away because I'll never need it again. I know I will finish that bottle that night. I didn't know that that's how my life would soon be, but it, it was to be. I saw them and I would, like I say, I would be the first person I saw drunk. And uh, it was just instinctive. Tom said it last night. It was as natural to me as breathing. It just felt right and my life changed. I arrived at that party at 6 o'clock that Friday night, and it, would, it, it was as if I walked through a set of doors, and I never did 
nor have I returned to the room I left. Because when I did end up in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was introduced to a way of life I didn't even know existed, yet would be the only way of life I want to live. I took my, I started to drink at six o'clock that night and it would set a pattern for me that I assumed everyone had. I assumed because this was my first and only experience, this was everybody's experience. And so I started at six o'clock and at twelve years old it's sort of like a liquid potluck. Everybody brings something, you mix it up and you pass it around and, and, uh, That's what happened. And to me, it would not make a difference from that point on whether it was liquor or beer or mixed or straight out of a bottle or a glass with ice. It would not make a difference. I would have my preferences soon, but it wouldn't make any difference. And so I took that first drink that night and because I couldn't wait. I looked at this thing as my debut. I mean, I've got one chance to be a part of this and do this right, and I had decided I'm going to get drunk. Now, again, I don't know where that came from, but that was what I had set out to do. That was, I was on a mission. And that night, I had my, took that first drink, and the magic began to happen. You see, I thought this is whatever was happening to everybody, but I would be eventually the only little kid that got drunk that night. But it went down there, and it began to do something. And I began to feel different, and I began to have some, this warm glow inside. And I couldn't wait for the next drink. And I took that next one. And this is what began to happen to me. You see, I had walked into that party nervous and scared. And God, I hope everything's going to be okay. And I hope I'll be accepted by these people. And oh my God. And after that second drink, the change began. And it's sort of like you throw your shoulders back and you lift your head and you think, aren't they glad I'm here? I mean, that's exactly what happened to me, I'll tell you. And Clancy put it in, the very first time I heard this, I heard him say it, and it perfectly described me in the shortest amount of words. It instantly changed my perception. And it would continue to do that. Alcoholics Anonymous, not instantly, but continues to change my perception to a more positive manner. But this did it instantly. And you see, again, I thought it happened to everybody there. It didn't. You see, I would also get, I would, I passed out for the first time. I had blacked out for the first time. I came to at nine o'clock with my first case of the dry heaves. And I wanted to go back to the party. God, I'd had a good time. Now, who knows what happened, but I learned people are always willing to tell you about your blackouts. And, uh, um, I would soon find out those kinds of things out, but I, I just, I wanted to go back because I'd gotten drunk, and drunk equaled good time. That would be the equation to me. And so it wouldn't take me back to the party, but I did not forget what had happened that night. I uh, woke up Saturday morning, and my awakening thoughts were, now I wonder how I can get some more for tonight. Now I've just had my first drunk the night before, and I'm not even wondering if my little friends are thinking this way. I just know that I want to get some more for tonight. And so I, a few girlfriends and I did get a few cases of beer and uh, immediately got caught. And, you know, I was 12 years old at this time, and it not one time did the thought ever cross my mind of, well, you know, I am only 12. 
You know, maybe I should wait till I'm a little older. Maybe I should wait till I'm of legal age. Well, I'm here to tell you that I have never had a drink of legal age because every time I got there, they changed it. <laughs> so I've never had a legal drink of alcohol. Do not plan to change my sobriety date to include that. But it never occurred to me. No, that I didn't think that way. I thought, well, I'm just going to have to learn how to lie better and find a better hiding place. That's what I decided to do. And that is how my thinking began and where it would lead me. My drinking would mainly be limited to weekends, but what happened to me is I gradually, actually, quickly got an attitude of, I don't care, leave me alone, just get off my back. My attitude took such a nosedive. I didn't care about things anymore that had been important to me, to be a good uh, student, to, to be uh, obedient, to get home on time, to do well and obey. That had been important to me. And now, for some reason, who cares? I could not wait till the next time I could drink. I looked forward to that, to the next time, and I was living from the last time. My, mainly would be limited to weekends. Fridays are still my favorite night of the week. There just lots of things have happened to me on Fridays. I had my first drink on a Friday, and uh, a lot of other things would happen. And I, about a year after I was uh, had my first drunk, I was introduced to the wonderful world of drugs, which allowed me to stay conscious longer before the inevitable blackout. It just delayed the blackout. Because, you see, by this time, I'm drinking whiskey out of a bottle with a beer chaser, and that's my the way I like to drink. And I black out far too quickly, and I'm not into sleeping through life. I want to be in the middle of it. And I found that if I took things like speed or acid, that I could stay conscious longer, I could drink longer, and that was the whole point of the story. And so that became the kind of way that I like to do things. The last year and a half that I was out there for the majority of the time, my kind of a diet that I would shoot for every day was a bottle of whiskey and a hit or two of acid. And that is what I like to do. And I never one time thought anything of it. From the time I took my first to the last drink, pill, or anything, not one time do I ever recall giving it a second thought of maybe I shouldn't do this, or maybe this isn't right, or maybe it's too much. I never gave it a second thought. Those actions to me were as natural as breathing. Five years and three weeks after my first drunk, on a Friday night, May 2nd, 1975, I'm 17 years old, and I'm being escorted to a hospital as I'm being committed to a hospital in Grand Forks, North Dakota, for alcoholism and drug addiction. My father was tired of seeing his daughter commit slow suicide, and he sought professional advice, and they told him to put me in a hospital. Now... As a result of that, of course, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was not seeking help at that time, had no intention of seeking help, and yet knew, uh, uh, and but was introduced to this because later on I would. But it certainly wasn't what I was looking for. And had I not, had this not have happened, I don't know when, and of course I'll never know now what would have happened, but I certainly, it was not on my accord or at my request that I get help. 
But he took me to this place, and this was on a Friday. This did not look like a good Friday to me. It had ruined my weekend, uh, and I had a big one planned, I'll tell you. Um, I would be in this particular hospital for seven weeks. And I was provided and taught a lot of information about alcoholism. And on Friday nights, we would go to outside meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is a lot of fun. I can hardly wait to do this every Friday. And um, uh, when you're 17 and you see these people up here, uh, you know, they, they didn't drink. And it was forever. And at 17, forever is a very long time. You know, I'm not interested in forever. A few weeks to get the heat off, okay. But forever, no. I'm not interested in not drinking. I knew I would drink again. I just didn't know when or where. But what began to happen is, in these meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, well, naturally, since I'm not an alcoholic, there's no need to sit up front. So I would find the farthest corner away from the speaker I could find, listening outside to the sounds of the street. But every now and then I would apparently tune in because the conflict began. What happened is that I began to rationalize all the things that they said why I was not one of them. But on the inside where I live, I began to identify in my own small way. And the conflict began at that point because my excuses and my ignorance was being removed. And I was getting some self-knowledge. I know self-knowledge will not keep you sober. I've certainly proved that to myself. And I, our book tells us that. But I was beginning to learn something I was not aware of. I heard the easiest way for me to qualify is to tell you all the differences that I found. They would say things like they had lost their family because of drinking. I looked at that as an asset. You know, I, I wanted to lose my family. They were in the way. And yet I knew that my drinking had been a tremendous source of uh, pain to my father and stepmother, and it had been a real problem. And I had to leave because of that. But that's not how I saw it. They talked about... Uh, Wrecking cars, totaling out cars and stuff while drinking. Nope. I've never totaled a car, not officially. Um, I, uh, I used, I had a little drunk car that arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, the kind that they start off square and they kind of get rounded in with the drunk bumps, but I never, I never totaled out a car, not really. And so that was different. They talked about, uh, 502s and drunk driving charges. Never had any of those either. And the reason I didn't have any is because I knew all the police on the force. And when they would stop me for drunk driving, they would take my booze away and say, Deb, just go home, okay? And so I didn't have drunk driving charges. Um, they talked about uh, how many uh, jails and prisons they had been in. And, and I began to think, my God, I mean, there's a lot of criminals in here, you know. And... Um, my rationale was, look, I have only been in a jail three times, and every time it was a misunderstanding. You know, um, They talked about things like uh, losing jobs. And I had forgotten that, you know, 
I always seem to have some little job. I'm likable enough that people would hire me, and I'm a pretty good worker when I'm there. And I would find that uh, I, I began to remember I had been fired from a couple jobs, and I had been asked to quit from a few jobs. But I did have a bad habit. I used to quit in blackouts. And, of course, I didn't know I'd quit. I'd go in the next day, you know, like nothing's going on and lose one more job. So these were the kinds of things that I did my best to rationalize. And yet, in my own small way, gee, you know, these people did that kind of stuff, too. And they say they're alcoholics. But there were two things that they said that I could not deny and I could not rationalize away that bothered me. They talked about all those broken promises. Oh, God. The face of my father was what came up into my my view. I, the, the last while of my drinking was very, very tough on him. And it, I, a couple of instances with him, I'm always reminded of the simplicity of why I know that I'm an alcoholic. He would, he said to me one day, why can't you just have a couple of drinks? Why do you always have to get drunk? And unbeknownst to me, I answered him in the most honest answer there there is and was. Not having any knowledge of alcoholism, I didn't know that when I take a drink, I have an abnormal reaction that you don't have. You see, my answer was simply, I don't know. I don't know why I can't have a couple. I don't know why I don't want to have just a couple. I always want to get drunk. I've always known that I can't control my liquor, but I don't want to either. You see, I also know that, you see, when he takes a drink, it doesn't make him feel better. When I take a drink, it does make me feel better. We played a game that would usually last two weeks. One more time when trouble would come and I would be good. And good meant that I would not drink. And um, we would play this game that for about two weeks would be the maximum. And by, I'll tell you, by the time that second Friday came around, everything is on end. And I am just going crazy on the inside. And I need some relief right now. Not tomorrow or next month, but I need it now. To, as I've come to learn, really to preserve my sanity, to keep myself together. And I know what I said to him. I, I know what is going to happen. I know the heartache he's going to feel. But you know what? That's just too bad. Because I know what I'm going through. And I know where I can get relief right now. And I know that as an alcoholic. I'm very grateful that I, I know that there are or have only been two ways for me to get relief. And those have been through alcohol and drugs or through the steps and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have never found anything that does it quite like that as a third option. It's never been the donut shop. It's never been a relationship, a change of city. None of that stuff has ever done what these two things have done. And I'm very grateful that for over 16 years I've tried to follow the path of Alcoholics Anonymous. But that's uh, one of the things they said that I could not justify and rationalize away. And the other was that they said that they had tried to scrub away the smell. 
Now, I had two alcoholic girlfriends, and I'm very happy to report one of them is sober again, and I see her on a regular basis at a meeting, and the other one is still has gone back to drinking several years ago. But I never, we drank exactly like mirrors. And so we felt, nobody said to the other, you drink too much or you do this too much. And I never told them about scrubbing away the smell. But these people were talking about that. It, the frightening part was, is that I knew that they knew what the smell smelled like. And they said the smell was booze coming through their pores. And that is what gave me the chills because I didn't know what it was. I thought maybe I was sick or I had some strange disease or something. And I, in a way, yes to both of those questions, but never would I have thought it was booze. Because I tried to puff and powder and perfume it off and it, I could not figure out what was, what it was. I know I'm naive. I was then. I am today. Will be forever. But I did not know that's what it was. And so those were the two things I couldn't justify and rationalize away. Well, finally, after seven weeks on a Friday, they sent me to an all-women's halfway house in Minneapolis. And I'm terrified. I don't like women. I don't want to like women. And yet I'm being put in with a house of 40 of them. And uh, so as a result of that, I, I don't know if it helped me like women, but I know today, first of all, I don't, I don't know if I've ever met of all the women in 16 years of sobriety that I have met, how many have entered liking women? And if you are new and having that same kind of struggle, hang in there. Because one day it will become easier to talk to the women than to the guys. Because they will be the ones to save your fanny in this program of sobriety. And so stay very, very close. I uh, went to this halfway house, and they had told me that, uh, uh, well, I, I ended up staying there nine months total. I was had only planned on a month and a half, and they told me I was going to be there three months, and, you know, so that didn't, my timing never has been very good. And they told me a couple of rules. I had, I was not allowed to drink or take drugs, okay, and I had to go to at least one Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a month. Okay, I can do that. And that was all I did. I went to, I did not drink or take drugs, and I went to one Alcoholics Anonymous meeting a month whether I needed it or not. And of course, in my opinion, I didn't really need it, but I needed to get this piece of paper signed. I was too stupid that I could sign it myself and go to the movies. But I uh, went. And uh, I, I learned, in retrospect, from that experience, that for myself, just not drinking... An attending meeting, if you could call it that really, is not my solution. I have got to take the actions of the steps to change my life. That is what will make me comfortable with me on the inside. Because I didn't change anything. I didn't change the way I looked or acted or behaved or dressed or any little image I had, and I kept every old phone number very, very current. I didn't change anything. All I did was not drink. And for me, to not drink, and that's it, I will one day drink again. 
because I, I'm an alcoholic and if I'm not changing what's happening on the inside in my way of life, I will go back to the old life. And that's exactly what I did. After seven months, I went to California to visit my mother on a two and a half week holiday. The first week I was miserable because naturally I hung around with the people I had drank and used with before. Why would I call Alcoholics Anonymous? Uh, I don't want to be around those people. In the last week and a half, I was drunk. I was, I did all the things that I had done before, but for some reason, something's not right here. Well, it must be California. You know, if only I was where I used to drink, if only I was with my old friends, it must be California. But there was a little part of me that knew that there wasn't any if onlys here at all. There, I had been to too many meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. It will ruin your drinking, let me tell you. I can verify that, and I've had other people agree. And I I was physically drunk up to my eyeballs. I could not get off the floor, and my mind was as clear as it is now. Something was definitely wrong here. And I, I did everything I could, and I couldn't change that. And what happened is that all those symptoms that I had not even known I heard were becoming more magnified. They had always been there. I had never been able to control my drinking. I had never been able to predict my behavior. None of these types of things that when I took that first drink, every promise I had made, every kind of decency about me went out the window. It became all-powerful to me and a complete obsession in my mind. And this is these are some of the things I had heard that these people talked about and they were had always been there. I wasn't quite there and accepting it 100% yet, but it was very, very close. And so uh, I returned from California to Minneapolis. I've learned my lesson. I stepped my meetings up from one a month to one a week. Hey, when you're running your own life, one meeting a week sounds like an awful lot of meetings to me. And uh, finally the day came when, uh, uh, you know, I don't have a sponsor. I don't have anybody like that. I'm just showing up in meetings and not drinking one more time. And um, on a Friday, I got a letter in the mail from one of these people that I'd known in California, and it had one joint in it. And like any still rationalizing, uncommitted member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I decided to keep it, you know, just in case the day may come when I might need it. You know, you never know. Of course, I didn't know it would be the next day. Um, that was the 7th of February, and I take my sobriety date on the 8th of February. Because on the morning of the 7th of February, I had no idea that that would be the last day to this, that I would take anything. I had no clue that for the first time in my life I would surrender by the end of that day. I woke up with one thought on my mind, and that was to smoke that one lousy joint. And I don't know when you, whatever your February 7th is, is my very favorite day of your life. Because I don't know when, how you know when you're going to get the gift of sobriety. I didn't plan it for that day. I didn't pick that day. If it would have been up to me to pick, I'd have picked something easier to remember. Something with a ring to it. It wasn't mine to pick. And I've read in our literature, and I believe this to be true, that sobriety is a gift. We're provided a, a kit of spiritual tools, and I have to be the one to bend down and pick them up. And I also think, that if the day ever comes and 
God knows I hope this day never does come, and it won't if as long as I stay active and do the things in Alcoholics Anonymous and live this way of life. But if the day ever comes when I get so far off center that I decide that picking up a drink is okay, I think that it hasn't been that God has snatched sobriety from me at all and snatched back the gift. I think I just sort of picked it up and threw it back at him and said, no thanks, I don't want it anymore. Because that's how I believe he does things. I don't think he's uh, he does it like that. He loves me. And he wants me to have this. And it's me that will, with my own selfishness and self-centeredness and self-will, will throw it back. And so I don't know when you get this gift, but I'm grateful that I've had it for 16 years so far. That was, uh, that day when I smoked that one joint was the last thing I've ever taken and it was the greatest conflict I have ever had. It obviously was not the most I have ever done or the highest or anything, but it created a conflict that was volcanic in me. And I could not stand to keep breathing and living this same way. Now I don't believe that I'm an alcoholic because I drank too much because I've never read in our book where there's a quantity minimum I'll tell you, I didn't drink enough, probably. I, as far as I'm concerned, I, there's probably a whole lot more for me to drink out there. But what makes me not pick up that drink is I've had enough of what happens to me on the inside. I cannot live with that kind of conflict anymore. And that's what it creates. And so I, I surrendered for the first time. I went to, from that point, I went, started going to meetings every night. I've got in touch with the old-timers. I've clung to them, and as I said, and anyone who was sober longer than I've been alive, because they had something, they obviously know how to stay sober and how to do this, and I don't. And so my question, obviously, is how do I stay sober? What do I need to do? And they gave me the guidelines that were all given, and I certainly will be the first to tell you I have not lived up to them with grace and dignity at all times and with assuredness and self-respect. But they have always been the things that I can attain and strive for on a daily basis. They said, first of all, we don't take the first drink or anything mood-altering. We work with new people. We're a regular member in our home groups. We take these steps and we develop and attain a God of our understanding. We try to carry this message on. We study our book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and practice this as a way of life. That's always been the Thing that I can attain to and aspire to every day. I got sober at 18 years old and I had not experienced a lot of life and I began to do that. And I um, certainly will be the first to tell you that my sobriety is not white satin sheet. It is, it is full of life. It is full of marks and tears and stains and cuts and bruises and skinned up knees. But I have always had Alcoholics Anonymous to show me a way of life that I don't have to live that way anymore if I don't want to, that I have a way to make amends if I've caused and done wrong, that I have a way to be better, be better than I am. My first four years was active in Minneapolis. I was in meetings every night and I was active and and uh, as I said, I, then I was involved with service. I got my first official sponsor when I was three years sober. And then I moved to Atlanta, and I uh, would be there almost seven years, and I got a sponsor down there. But what happened is that I sort of uh, took a, a bit of a break. I arrived, and I thought, you know, I don't really know how they do things down here. So 
I'm going to sort of kick back and, and go to two or three meetings a week and, and uh, see how they do stuff. Get a little balance in my life. Gee, I go to an awful lot of meetings. Well, what happened is when I decide two or three meetings a week, it becomes two. I always will lower the number. I have not ever increased it. That's why I don't leave the number of meetings to me to be minimums, or this is what I think is enough to get by, because I'll always short it. And I began to do that, and I, what's, I began to become very isolated. I began to really withdraw, and I began to, be over a period of time, become restless, irritable, and discontent. I got so much balance in my life, I about balanced myself out of sobriety. If I'm going to be out of balance, let me be out of balance in Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me have, the, have gone to too many meetings, because I've never known anybody who got drunk who'd been to too many meetings, but I've known an awful lot of people who hadn't been to any. And I don't want to be sitting there saying, well, I started when I quit going to meetings. And I was decreasing my activity. And, and I, uh, uh, what happened in summary is over a two-year period of time, I'm about six years sober and I'm restless, irritable, and discontent, and I don't know why. And I'm looking at my life and I'm thinking, you know, or in retrospect, I saw that when I had arrived from Minneapolis to Atlanta, in my home group, not every meeting, but in my home group meeting, I used to arrive an hour before the meeting because the meeting before the meeting is fun, helping set up. And now I find I'm arriving about five minutes before the meeting. I get my coffee, and if there's a newcomer on the way to my chair, I'll shake their hand, and then the meeting starts. I looked at after the meeting. I used to be one of the last people. And now uh, I, it's sort of like, amen, shake, shake. Okay, see y'all next week. Bye. Gone. And now, and that's not the way it used to be. And I'm really wondering why I'm restless and discontent. Well, Alcoholics Anonymous had become something I attended twice a week. I might as well go into, been going to an art class or something. I mean, that's about how much I was giving Alcoholics Anonymous. This is my way of life, and I'm treating it as something that I'm checking off my list for. Yeah, I've done that this week now. It's like laundry. No, I can't treat my way of life like that. And I was going to be paying a price. I couldn't figure out why I was restless, irritable, and discontent until about three weeks after my sixth birthday on a Friday night I met him. Now I knew why I was. And I, uh, I met this little fella. And the only reason I share this particular year of my life is because it so far has been the worst year of my sobriety. Um, I have seen many, this happen to many people simply called obsession. Um, I, this poor little fella, wrong place at the wrong time. I mean, um, he, he was single. That was really good. Um, he had a lot of money. That was great. Um, and gee, isn't it something? He's been sober 13 years. Now, he hadn't been to a meeting in three years, but no problem. Ah, help him. <laughs> we were about to set off on that magical AA path, and um, what happened is that uh, he wasn't interested in getting helped about how I was going to help him, but it didn't matter to me. No problem. 
what happened is that you would have found the exact same personality seven years prior regarding alcohol and drugs that was emerging now. Because every seven years prior, every who, what, when, where, why, how, and what revolved around alcohol and drugs. My life did. And now it's revolving around the human being. It was during this period of time that I thought of uh, uh, crazy, very destructive things. I thought about suicide. Temporary suicide, of course. Nothing permanent. Um, I don't want to... I want to make sure it worked, right? I mean, he really felt bad. I thought about running my car up against those guardrails or getting drunk at him to see how much he had hurt me. And very, very sick, stinking thinking. Bad thoughts. And yet they were very real to me. And I, I was as close to being crazy on the inside as I think I've ever been because there was no rare to get relief. I wasn't listening to a sponsor. The only thing I did not do because of my early training was I did not stop going to meetings. Now, they were the last place I wanted to be because that's where the solution was, okay? And many people tried to offer it to me, but I wasn't interested in a solution. For some reason, I had it in my head that I could do something, and I can. And so I would, I, but I would go to the meetings because I was too afraid not to go. You see, I knew one thing. I had about a half an ounce of sanity left. But I knew this, that the minute I said the first excuse not to go to the meeting, my second excuse would come twice as fast and easy. And I also knew that the minute I made that first excuse, I might as well go down to the nearby bar because I'll be there in a short time anyway. I was, I knew I would drink if I ever did that. And I was very afraid to do that. I didn't like what was going on here, but I was too afraid to quit going to the meeting. I'd walk in crying, leave crying. I mean, it was just an absolute mess. Well, after, obviously, I was certainly not somebody who pointed over at the corner and said, see, at six years sober, you too can be like that. I mean, I was no model member of Alcoholics Anonymous during this time, and it's a very embarrassing time for me to talk about. You know, we always like to look good up here, but this was the truth, and it, it has saved my life remembering it. Well, after three months of this whirlwind romance, of which I was the only one involved, um, God had put one more roadblock here, there that he thought I would uh, adhere to, and he was right. He'd put them all in there, but I kicked them all down or ran over them or something. And finally, this guy got married to somebody else. So I was a good sport. I let him go. And... Uh, <laughs> just sort of seemed to go around the block and bingo, there was another little fellow, just very similar qualifications and after three months of something very similar, he got married to somebody else. So the single life was looking more appealing to me and uh, I had not been very successful with my choices and I was also at the end of feeling such terrible pain of running my own life. And I, I knew I am at the fork. The next step is going to determine you're either in or you're out. And I knew I wanted to be sober a million times more than I wanted to be drunk. And what kept repeating in my mind was the first line in step six in the 12 and 12. 
this is the step that separates the men from the boys. And I knew I wanted to be one of the men. I knew I wanted to be one of the grown-ups, one of the adults, because I certainly did had not been living that kind of way. And I had to... I made a recommitment to Alcoholics Anonymous. About two weeks later, I went to a convention, and one more time began to change my life around. I heard on Friday night a speaker talking regarding his drinking days, saying that people, places, and things don't make me happy. And I'm almost seven years sober and thinking, my God, that's exactly where I am, right here in sobriety. That's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm looking more, I altered the words to fit me, to be men, money, and mansions don't make me happy. And it's not that there's anything wrong with any of those things, but what I wanted to do with them was abuse them. Now, I uh, I didn't think there was anything wrong because all I wanted to be was humbly mega wealthy. I mean, I didn't uh, think there was anything wrong with that. Then I'll get the spiritual stuff, you know. I would just get, oh, uh, yeah, right. But I've learned here, and my our book tells us that for me, the spiritual always has to precede the material progress because when it does, then the material is not as important that the value is is in proportion and so that was Friday night and then Saturday night I heard that uh, if you've got some family business to take care of you better take care of it while they're still alive and before they die and you say I wish I would have I wasn't ready for that one because the skeleton of my stepmother sort of stepped forward she and I started World War III the day after they were married. And it was not a very good situation for a long time. And when I left that home, I left that home. And I um, knew now was the time that I had to make amends. Now, if you'd asked me five minutes before that meeting started, say, uh, when are you ever going to make amends to your stepmother? My response would have been, well, I don't know, sometime. I'll probably make them. Now I knew, now was the time. It would haunt me until I did. And I went back, and I began to feel the courage and the strength, because this was a big one for me. Because as I saw it, she certainly owed me a whole lot more of amends than I ever owed her. And I learned a great many lessons as a result of that. One of them was that just because I do not remember the exact harms caused does not excuse me nor relieve me of the responsibility to make the amends. And I didn't like that. And just because, in my opinion, she owed me more than I owed her was irrelevant. But again, it did not excuse me. This is my life. This is my life that I have to live with. She doesn't. Nobody does. I have to live with my own actions. Good, bad, or indifferent. And so I went back and I took these steps with my sponsor like as if I had never taken them before. And I, I did each one of them and I did an inventory again and I did my six and seven and eight and nine and I made amends to her. And God, I just felt terrific. I mean, I, I, just top of the world. Well, what happened though is that I lived on that for a year and a half. Now I'm a lot more active than I've been through this particular year, my sixth year, I'm a lot more active and I'm working with new people and sponsoring people, but I'm eight and a half years sober and I'm, uh, it's kind of waning a little bit and I'm thinking, why, why can't this enthusiasm just stay there? 
Why does it come and go? Why can't it just always be here? And all, I was at my regular Tuesday night meeting, and I am forever grateful that I didn't find it necessary to get up and go to the bathroom or have somebody stumble over me so they could go get another cup of coffee, because if they would have, and I would have missed this line, I think, I know you'd have a different chocolate here tonight, because I believe this guy saved my life. And that's why I always try to act my best in a meeting so that I don't distract somebody from what they need to hear. I don't, I don't ever want to be responsible for you missing what you need to hear or me missing what I need. But I'm so glad that I heard this because he just simply said that he had been feeling restless, irritable, and discontent in his sobriety. And that one day he finally realized that he was trying to live today on last year's program. That's exactly what I had been doing. I'd been living today on amends I'd made a year and a half ago, and I hadn't really been putting much else in the kitty. I hadn't been in today. I hadn't been doing that. And it gave me a new meaning of one day at a time. This is the day that I have to show up for life, show up for sobriety, show up to participate in life, to be a part of it, not live on yesterday's experience or glory. I learned that there aren't any badges or medals of Alcoholics Anonymous for me to go home tonight and polish up and then get up in the morning and slap those on and say, now, this is when I did this inventory and this is when I made this amend. And this is, oh yeah, five years ago when I took a newcomer to a meeting, that's this one. You know, there aren't any of those kinds of things. The badges and medals of Alcoholics Anonymous are not in a material sense because this is not a material way of life. It's a spiritual way of life. But we do have badges and medals of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you where I found them. I found them in the eyes of the old-timers. Sixteen years ago, I went to these men and women, and I looked in their eyes. And I saw inside of them a peace. I, I didn't know how you got that. I saw them standing in their own skin, and I didn't know how you did that, because I was always on the move on the inside. There was life behind their eyes, and I had always seen dull and a dead person. There was nothing happening behind mine. And I saw they had a God within, that they, they didn't have to say any of the words of what they had on the inside. It all spoke for itself, the way they the way they acted and the way they behaved. And those, to me, are the badges and medals of Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is the day that counts. This is the day that I must participate and show up. And for allowing me to participate in your convention and to show up for my sobriety, I thank you.